Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Today, my guest is John Reed. Uh, John is a mining engineer from the London's uh, Imperial College. And after years in the gold industry, he is now a market strategist for Europe and Asia at the World Gold Council. John joined the World Gold Council in February 2017, and he is responsible for producing strategy and developing insights on the gold market, leading the World Gold Council on global dialogue by engaging with leading economists, academics, policymakers, fund managers, investors on gold, and leading the World Gold Council research team. John, what a pleasure to have you. I look forward to our conversation today. Thank you very much, Sheila. I'm looking forward to talking to you. Lovely. So I, I thought we'd just uh, cut to the chase and say, when we think of commodity trading, gold uh, is, is marketed somewhat differently from other metals. Uh, and I just wanted you to perhaps explain to us, what are these differences between the way we market gold? Well, I suppose the principal difference between gold and other commodities is that you don't destroy gold by using it. If you think about oil, if you think about iron ore, you fundamentally transform those commodities into other products and then use them. In the case of gold, you dig it out of the ground, you refine it, you turn it into a product, whether it's a investment bar, a coin, a piece of jewelry, and it never goes away. So when you think about the way that commodity analysts look at industrial commodities or agricultural commodities, they're very much focused upon how much is demand, how much is supply, and how much are stocks. And those stocks are typically a few months of, uh, of demand sitting in stocks above ground. In the case of gold, there's about 3,600 tons of gold mined each year, and there's about 210,000 tons of gold that has been mined since antiquity. So we're never going to get a tight gold market. We're never going to get to a stage where um, people are worried about us running out of gold right now, because almost all of that gold that lies above ground can come back to the market. I guess the, the other principal difference between gold and other commodities is the cost to store it. So if you look at the cost to store a base metal like copper or aluminium, that might cost you 1% or 2% per annum. If you look at oil, it's high single digits. If you look at natural gas, it's tens of percent per annum. Um, if you look at gold, well, central bank store gold for probably 1 or 2 basis points, so 1 or 2 hundredths of a percent per annum. So storage costs of gold um, are very low. And that combination of a lack of scarcity, uh, lots of liquidity in the gold market, because there's a tremendous amount of trading, and low storage costs really differentiate it from other commodities. Mm. So I want to follow up on a couple of things. Now, uh, if you think of the basic law, if you wish, of uh, economics, which is supply and demand, uh, the assumption is that somewhere between whether supply is high or low versus demand and the reverse is that price volatility. 
So if we are not worried about as the prospects for us riding out of gold, how, what accounts for the movement in the price of gold that sometimes it can drop or rise so much higher than uh, what the markets might presume? Sure. Well, I mean, look, that 210,000 tons of gold I spoke about is available to come to the market, but at a certain price and under certain conditions. So at any time, you're absolutely right. Supply and demand determine the price. But the desire to buy or sell gold is very much affected by external conditions. So if you believe, for example, um, that we're in the start of a crisis, maybe an economic recession, or indeed a coronavirus pandemic, um, then you might be selling other assets because you think that they will perform poorly and you're looking to uh, invest in a safe haven. So people, more people will want to buy gold. And at the same time, the sellers, uh, because they want to hold on to their gold, uh, will demand a higher price. At other times, uh, when the economies are healthy, maybe more gold demand is being made up by jewelry buyers. They will buy it when the, the price is cheap. And if the price falls, they'll be inclined to stock up and buy more because they know that their customers offered a good price for gold jewelry in the markets around the world will tend to buy more. So like everything, really, gold is set by the expectations and the motivations of the buyers and sellers. I mean, the good thing about gold is it has a, it has a selection of different buyers that buy under different circumstances. And I've kind of alluded to some of those already. I mean, firstly, you have jewelry buyers make up about 38% of, of demand for gold on average over the last 10 years. Um, and they buy for weddings, they buy for festivals, they buy to give to their, their partners to express their love, they buy to wear themselves to, because of its beauty. And they tend to buy gold when they're wealthy, when their incomes are growing fast, and when the price is reasonable. Investors, on the other hand, tend to buy gold either to diversify their investment portfolios or they'll buy more if they're concerned about uh, the outlook for the global economy. Um, so they tend to buy when, when, thing, when bad things are happening rather than when they're feeling richer. Central banks buy gold as well, and they buy gold to diversify their vast foreign currency reserves. And then a small component of gold, perhaps about 7 or 8%, goes into industrial applications, primarily into technology. Um, so every electronic device that you have, everything we're using to record this podcast, has at the heart of it gold in microchips. So those different consumer sectors or buying areas amongst the gold market make it much more balanced than, say, a traditional industrial commodity where you know you buy your copper or your aluminium when the economies are growing faster, when you're expecting more orders. When things slow down, nobody buys it and the price collapses. So that's perhaps the reason why gold is much less volatile than other commodities, because you have these different uh, drivers uh, of demand. Yeah, that's very interesting because the, uh, in listening to you, uh, gold straddles the luxury uh, commodity market, which is the jewelry space. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, on the other extreme, for investors and uh, others, it's a store value. 
But but I wanted you to explain to us a, a little bit the relationship between uh, foreign currency reserves and 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 gold. Uh, we often hear that uh, X uh, Reserve Bank has this much gold. What is the relationship? Why gold? And how does it work to stabilize, uh, you know, foreign reserves in any one country? Sure. Um, and I think ultimately you've got to remember where we've come from. Prior to 1971, we were on a standard which everybody linked their currencies to the US dollar and, and the US dollar was linked to the price of gold. And if you go back even earlier, back into the 30s and the 1920s and before that, then currencies were deliberately linked to gold. So gold reserves have been a part of central banks uh, you know operations for you know for, for centuries. Um, now they're less of a role than they used to be because no country pegs its currency to gold. but it's still the only non-monetary asset that is eligible, according to the International Monetary Fund, to be included within international reserves. So a central bank's reserves is made up of currencies, usually invested in government bonds, typically short-term in duration. Um, so people might hold you know, T-bills or German bunds um, or, or euro um, or uh, Japanese yen, etc. And the only thing that they hold us aside from those um, government debt or near-government debt instruments is gold. So that's the reason why gold remains an important part of the uh, uh, of the central bank international reserve mix. Mm. And I, I guess there's, there's a couple of things that I'd say about what does gold mean to central banks. We'd make the argument that all investors should have a proportion of gold in their reserves because it helps with diversification, it helps with volatility reduction, it increases the risk-adjusted return of a portfolio. Now, central banks don't have the opportunity to invest in a wide range of assets. As I've said, they generally own uh, foreign currencies invested in government bonds, so they have fewer investment choices than a normal investor. So that makes gold even more important. But I guess the other thing is as well, is the performance of gold particularly over the last 15 years or so, uh, increasing um, in the mid-2000s and then performing particularly well during the global financial crisis and then performing well again during the COVID pandemic, reacted uh, positively when Russia invaded Ukraine uh, and even performed well earlier this year when we had the mini banking run. I think it's demonstrated to, uh, uh, to holders including central banks, that it's an asset that really works when you need it. The other issue, of course, from a central bank's perspective, is it's an asset which is nobody else's liability. If you think about the sanctions that were placed upon the central bank of Russia following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that's not something which you can do to gold. So, in other words, if you own the gold, nobody else uh, is uh, can take that away from you if you hold it in your own country, um, as Russia did. Russia had more than 20% of its reserves in gold, uh, and it held them within within Russia. So 
sanctions can be levied against the Central Bank of Russia, but it still owns its gold, it still controls its gold, uh, and it can do with it what it likes, as long as it doesn't trade with uh, or attempt to trade with countries which are sanctioning it. So I think that combination of diversification, um, an asset which is nobody else's liability, but also an asset that tends to perform well uh, during bad times, makes it attractive to central banks. And central banks have bought gold every year since the global financial crisis, and over the last 12 months have increased their rates of purchases uh, following the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So it's an important asset for central banks. We have a team here at the World Gold Council that only speaks to central banks, has conferences with them, conducts surveys, lots of one-on-one -on -one meetings. Uh, and, and we're doing a lot to educate central banks about the merits of owning gold uh, and the mechanisms by which they, they can buy it, store it, refine it, account for it, etc. That's fantastic. So, yes, you, you, you speak of the performance, the price performance of gold in the last 15 years. And I'm reminded that around 2011 or so, when gold reached uh, the $1,000 mark, you know, we all celebrated thinking, wow. Uh, and, and then by the time we got to COVID, it, it had doubled. It's just, uh, uh, you know, exceptional performance, really, by any measure of standard. And I, I suppose for those who hold uh, their wealth in gold, it, it, it has just reinforced uh, the value of gold as a store of value, but also to, to your point for Reserve Bank as an important part of their investment portfolio. I want to go back to something you said earlier about the, um, the fact that the amount of gold that exists today in the world today or equals the amount of gold uh, that was ever extracted. It, now, it, I'm assuming that here it is a function of one, the physical characteristics of uh, gold as a substance, uh, but that it is also because of the way that it is the use to which it is put. It, it doesn't corrode and it doesn't disintegrate like steel, for instance. It, it, what is it about gold that means that whatever was ever mined since time immemorial can be found today and, and in, in pretty much the same quantity? Well, I, I guess the point is, and, and you've touched on it there, Sheila, it's, it doesn't rust. It doesn't corrode. It, uh, it, if I were to buy a lump of gold uh, now and put it in you know, my closet and come back to it in 20 years' time, it would be in exactly the same condition that it was before. I, I think the other point about it as well, though, is that gold has always been valued. At, well, I say always, maybe for the last 6,000 years, it's been valued. So people tend not to throw it away. They turn it into beautiful ornaments, jewellery, um, investment bars, and they hold on to this gold and they look after it. Um, there has been some gold that's lost. You think about the treasure ships that came from South America uh, back to Spain and Portugal, some of which were sunk by storms, some of which were sunk by the English. Um, there's gold at the bottom of the Atlantic, and uh, some of that's, I guess, unavailable to the market now. Although, again, no particular reason why it couldn't be discovered at some point, because it won't corrode. Perhaps the one area where gold has been lost is in its industrial applications. So if you think about the gold that goes into integrated circuits or uh, into dentistry, not all of that gold is recovered. A good 
proportion of electronic devices simply get thrown away. And, and you might think, well, why would I throw away a cell phone because I can recycle that and sell it for a secondhand value? And you can. But there's gold in integrated circuits in my toothbrush. And do I strip my toothbrush down to get that tiny piece of gold that's in the, in the, uh, uh, the microchip inside? And the answer is probably not. Uh, maybe I give it away to somebody that's going to, going to uh, recycle the electronic waste uh, and therefore recover the gold. But there's a lot of people that don't. So there is a small proportion of gold that gets lost each year. And of that 210,000 tons, I think it's probably reasonable to assume that maybe 5%, perhaps as high as 10% of that gold uh, has been lost, albeit perhaps temporarily. I, yeah. I do know some entrepreneurs uh, who have suggested that we might go back and remine our refuse dumps uh, in years to come to recover the uh, the nickel from the batteries, uh, the silver and gold from the electronics, uh, because at some point those um, those metals could become really uh, so much more valuable. But we do throw away a lot of stuff at the moment in our culture, and and um, and some gold gets thrown away. Um, along with that. Yeah. I suppose this is where the uh, advocates for the circular economy comes in. But for now, that's a little uh, uh, distance from where we are. At the moment, we mm. are in linear uh, economy. But I, I do want to ask you, people talk about how we, this daily gold spot price. First, what is a spot price and how do we arrive at this? For a lay person, uh, it sounds somewhat arbitrary, is it, John? Well, um, it's not arbitrary if you're trying to buy and sell gold. So simply a spot price refers to a price which you can buy gold and receive near immediate delivery. And the gold market, like the foreign exchange market, trades on a what they call T plus two. So trading date plus two days, you receive the settlement for your gold if you trade it on the wholesale market. And the spot price of gold is, it's very carefully defined, but it's the price at which um, wholesale traders buy and sell gold uh, with each other. Um, and when I say wholesale, because the, the, the detail behind the spot gold prices, it's an over-the-counter or an OTC trade in gold between two parties and it is for a specific size, quality, and location of gold bar. So the price you see on your Bloomberg screen or on your Reuters screen um, for gold is not the price that you'll play in the shops when you go for uh, to buy jewelry or even investment bars. It specifically refers to the price of gold um, in a 400-ounce bar, about 12.5 kilograms in weight, I call these the James Bond bars because we've all seen the the film Goldfinger, you know, which is big big piles of gold in a vault, actually in Switzerland. Uh, I've been to that vault, but I can't tell you where it is. Um, anyway, so it's referring specifically to the, to gold of that size and of a purity of a minimum of ninety nine point five percent pure. If you want to buy an investment bar from a shop, you're going to pay a premium to that gold price you see on the screen. Um, because you probably won't be buying one of those large bars because they're, you know, getting on for a, close to a million dollars uh, a bar now. 
you'll be buying a smaller product which has a fabrication charge associated with it and you might pay two or three percent premium to that price and if you buy jewelry well you'll pay a big premium in the west you could easily pay 300 400 percent premium over the intrinsic value of gold even if you go and buy a simple wedding ring or a gold chain um so there is the gold price which the market trades with itself and then there are a whole number of different gold prices for different products uh, around the world, um, different qualities, different standards, really. Um, so when we talk about the gold price, we're being very specific in terms of what we're referring to. All right. Now, that, that makes sense because I guess when one is buying gold as uh, a piece of jewelry, for instance, that is, for all intents and purposes, a, a, a pseudo-secondary market. Uh, but also at that point, you're starting to pay, for instance, for brand recognition. You are paying for the rent uh, that comes with whatever the location of the store is uh, and, and so forth and so forth. So at that point, the price is not entirely about gold per se as it is about all the other aspects uh, of cost and, and, and uh, brand that comes with the product. I wanted to to talk about uh, gold purity. So yeah. you you reference uh, ninety nine percent purity. Is there a standard by which refineries uh, are expected, at least let's say your members, to refine gold, or is it a function of responding to the needs of the customer that they are serving? Yeah, I mean it's an interesting question. I mean it's a bit of both. If you want to produce gold which is acceptable to the OTC market that I was referring to before so that the whole wholesale traders can trade with, with each other, it must be to a minimum purity of 99.5%. Um, and if you want to have gold in the clearing system so that, 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 they could, that the counterparties can trade with each other, it needs to be in these large 400-ounce bars. So... I guess the basic standard for re pure refined gold is that 99.5% pure, produced by a refinery that's recognized by the London um, Bullion Market Association and in that size of 400 ounces. However, um, investors often want gold of higher purity. So most investment bars that are sold in the West, in China, and in much of Asia, are what they call four nines gold. So that's 99.99% pure. So that's really a, a couple of orders of magnitude uh, greater purity than in, for the, uh, the wholesale market, which is only 99.5% pure. Uh, but it's very typical for investors to demand these so-called four nines investment products. Right. Now, um, mining companies don't refine their own gold. So our members who are mining companies typically want produce what is called gold doré. Now, gold doré is a, a big block of gold-looking metal, very heavy. But it could be 50% pure, it could be 70% pure, it could be rarely as much as 90% pure. But it's not pure gold. It's not what you can sell into the market directly. So the gold mining companies ship these these rough bars, these doré bars, as they're known, to refineries, and the refineries then 
turn that into into pure gold, either of nine nine five quality, but more normally of 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 ninety nine point nine nine percent purity, and and then you know that goes off into the markets around the world. Mm. So we we are seeing uh, a, an emergence of, uh, if you wish, commodity trading centers like the one which you will no doubt know, the Dubai Multi Commodities Center. Uh, how has the emergence of these uh, markets changed, if at all, the uh, gold trading market? Uh, or are they, as you said earlier, just the downstream elements of, uh, from mm-hmm. the spot price level? Yeah. Are they immaterial in terms of the, high, uh, the higher level trading hierarchy for the gold market? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, in the end, I consider these venues, and Dubai is one, Singapore is another, um, Bangkok, where I was last week, uh, is another, Hong Kong. Um, they are downstream to a degree in that they are closer to the end consumer. Obviously, there's lots of gold bought in all of those countries. Um, but there is sufficient turnover in those markets that that demand and supply and that they help contribute to the price formation of the overall gold price so the amount you know the, the volumes that that trade in gold around the world are dominated by the european effectively london over the counter market uh, together with some important commodity exchanges around the world but these other trading centers, uh, I'd probably put Istanbul in there as well, um, they do contribute because the prices at which gold is trading at in all of these markets influences, to a greater or lesser extent, the overall gold price. So one of the questions you asked earlier, which I didn't really answer is, you know, is the OTC price arbitrary? Um, and I would say, no, it's not. It actually is the price at which supply and demand is matching off every every moment of well, it's not quite a twenty four hour market, but it's probably eighteen hours a day times five days a week. Uh, there are buyers and sellers of gold on electronic platforms eventually being uh, available for settlement in physical metal. Um, that's determining the price. And many of those traders are based in Europe or in the u s. Comex market or in the Chinese gold markets, et cetera. But an awful lot of them are downstream as well, and and their orders and their their buying and selling uh, is influencing the price all the time. Right. So uh, as you know, uh, the uh, some emerging market countries have been pushing to benefit uh, minerals, including uh, gold. Mm. Uh, I'm also mindful that uh, the World Gold Council. Uh, is at the forefront of, you know, sustainable gold and and responsible gold, and, and and then so if one thinks of the ESGs and social risk, to the extent that there is a bit of tension between mining companies and host governments, this may mm. well impact the market. And I wanted to get your sense. What is your understanding of this beneficiary? Do they mean producing gold bars from Dore? Uh, or, or what? And in and if they moved downstream to producing gold bars, how would that 
affect uh, the gold market uh, in terms of your own standards for what is accepted, uh, refining standards for gold bars? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a big and complex topic, but I'll try and I'll try and explain my perspective on it. Um, in general, I think the first point I would say is there is too much gold refining capacity in the world. Okay, so that means that the margins for refining gold for taking Doré and producing London Good Delivery bars, the big four hundred ounce bars, um, the margins on that are super slim, and I would estimate that that refineries that only have a business of taking um, newly mined gold in the form of Doré and turning that into large bars and selling them into the market would lose money. Where gold mines, sorry, where gold refineries make their money is in what's called value-added products. Now, those value-added products are the investment bars, the one kilogram four nines investment bars. It's in the smaller investment pieces. It's in making coin blanks. It's in fabricating um, uh, raw materials for the jewelry industry, maybe making watch cases and fastenings. So those sorts of things. So that's where gold refineries make money. Now, if I think about a typical refinery, um, it if it's going to be successful and profitable, it needs to have the ability to sell these value-added products in competition with existing refineries. Uh, and this comes back to an earlier point that you made about branding. So I don't know, there's maybe a, a dozen or so gold refining companies in the West that have been going for many years. They produce bars of gold that are recognized in every gold market. People will recognize these and uh, feel comfortable buying them. If a, a country opened its own gold refinery and was able to get that gold refinery recognized by the London Bullion Market Association, so they would need a certain amount of turnover, they'd need a produce, I think it's 30 tons of gold a year from their refinery. Um, they'd have to produce it to a certain quality, and for that quality to be reliable, they'd need to be able to weigh it uh, down to fractions of a gram, etc. And if they could do all of that, that's fine. They could then be a good delivery refinery. But if they're to make money, then they're going to have to find people that are prepared to pay for their value-added gold products at the premiums that you know, that makes sense. So if you have a domestic gold market, China, I guess, is a good example of this. Um, they have, you know, they have a, they're the biggest producers of gold. They're the biggest importers of gold, um, the biggest consumers, and the biggest refiners. Um, and they can refine gold themselves and sell it into the domestic markets because Chinese people recognize the names of the companies that are, that are doing the refinery refining and there's a there's strong demand for domestic gold in China. So there's lots of good delivery refineries in China. We virtually never see that gold leave China. Um, so their brands aren't known in the international market, but it doesn't matter because there's enough demand in China to uh, to create a good living for those refineries. But if I was in a in a in a I don't know, a, a developing country with very little domestic investment market uh, very little domestic jewelry market. I think you know having a domestic gold refinery, um, you're probably not going to make money from that. 
So you, you have to wonder is that, well, if the margins are so small in running a refinery, if you don't have downstream demand for it, then you're probably better off shipping that gold to an international refinery, taking advantage of overcapacity in the refining sector, um, rather than wasting money building a refinery and then struggling to make money from it. Absolutely. Well, we could, of course, talk uh, for the rest of the day, but that's all we have time for, John. Uh, this was very interesting, and thank you very much for joining the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. I enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you, Sheila. And look, we'd, I'd be happy to come back and do this again, and we can talk in, about some of these topics in more detail. Um, I've, I, I consider myself a very boring dinner party guest because I know an awful lot about a very little, and that is, that is the gold market. That's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you very much.